Welcome back to Word Balloon, the comic book conversation show. John Suntress here. We have a great talk today coming up with Gary Gianni. Gary is a wonderful artist. Um, if you uh, know your 90s comics, he did great runs on The Shadow, has always been a wonderful kind of pulpy artist. And uh, he did also his own creator-owned series called The Monster Men that used to appear in the back of Hellboy. Well, Mike Mignola and uh, Gary Gianni are old-time friends, and Mike convinced Gary a while ago to uh, draw this incredible graphic novel that comes out on Wednesday the 19th. It's Hellboy Into the Silent Sea. Mike Mignola wrote it, Dave Stewart colored it, and Gary Gianni brings his beautiful artistic style to the world of Hellboy. And it's really interesting because you'll really appreciate the lush illustrations, uh, the subjects that Mike has Gary draw in this story. I mean, it mostly takes place on a whaling ship, but Hellboy is all over the globe uh, encountering various things. And there are great scenes, not only with Hellboy, but some of the other characters as well. A great horror, mythological, pulpy story that uh, has uh, allusions to Moby Dick and even Popeye. Uh, not only that, Gary Gianni is an accomplished illustrator for years and has worked with such uh, writers as Michael Chabon and George R. Martin in the last couple of years. But he also uh, had the privilege of working with Ray Bradbury on uh, one of his last uh, stories. And uh, Gary gives us that story, which is amazing. Uh, we also talk old movies because he and I love old movies. And talking about Moby Dick, you can't help but talk about the classic film 50s version uh, with Gregory Peck. And John Huston directed, and Ray Bradbury himself, of course, wrote the thing. Uh, so a really neat conversation with Gary Gianni on today's Word Balloon. It's all brought to you by the League of Word Balloon listeners. Thank you very much, League, for your support. Uh, I am pleased to say that uh, there are so many great conversations. Uh, some months are just, you know, the hits keep on coming, and so many are time-sensitive. There's going to be an avalanche of Word Balloon interviews coming in the next couple days. Uh, but thank you, League, for your support. Um, if you like Word Balloon, if you like what I do here, um, I am uh, between uh, full-time jobs and uh, could use the help if you can spare it. So uh, if you like Word Balloon and think it's worth, you know, the price of a comic book a month, um, you could subscribe to Word Balloon through my Patreon page. If you go to wordballoon.com, there's a pre Patreon ad right there. You click on that. It will take you to my Patreon page. Or you can go, or you can go directly to patreon.com slash wordballoon. Word Balloon is also brought to you by InStock Trades at InStockTrades.com. Uh, there are some really great collections coming uh, from in-stock trades at great prices. How about the Vigilante by Marv Wolfman trade? Uh, one of the great 80s series and uh, another series that spun out of Teen Titans. Um, really one of the darkest things that I've ever read Marv Wolfman write, but I think it's brilliant. Volume 1 is out, 42% off, $17.39. You can get Aquaman, trade paperback. Volume 2. Black Manta Rising, Dan Abnett doing an amazing job writing. Brad Walker drawing the hell out of Aquaman. Good classic Aquaman stuff, 42% off, $11.59. There's Black Panther, trade paperback book three, Nation Under Our Feet. Tennessee Coates, Jonathan Hickman. Uh, wow, what, a, what an amazing uh, collaboration. Uh, there's uh, Chris Sprouse, uh, Brian Stelfreeze did the cover. Uh, just beautiful. Laura Martin doing the colors on this. This is uh, Volume 2 of Mr. Coates' incredible run on Black Panther, 42% off, $9.85. Then, uh, you know, we've got um, Hail, uh, the uh, Secret Empire coming up very soon. But uh, from Marvel, if you want the lead-up to that, you can check out uh, Captain America Steve Rogers, Volume 2, The Trial of Maria Hill. Nick Spencer, Jesus Saiz, 
It's, uh, I'm telling you, it's one of my favorite series, and I really am excited for uh, Secret Empire coming very soon. But uh, that book is 42% off. It's just $9.27. How about a classic uh, from the Golden Age of Comics? Um, EC Archives, Haunt of Fear. Al Feldstein doing the writing. Uh, lots of great artists in this. Uh, the Haunt of Fear collects a gruesome medley of unforgettable frights. So you're talking about stuff from Bill Gaines, Al Feldstein, Graham Engels, George Evans, Jack Kamen, Jack Davis, Reed Crandall, uh, all just uh, some of the, some of the murderers row of the uh, golden and early silver age of comics. This is 42% off, $28 and 98 and 99 cents. Just some of the great books waiting for you at in stock trades. I want to give you one more because uh, this is, this is really an incredible collection. The complete phonogram from uh, Kieran Gill, uh, uh, Gillum and uh, Jamie McKelvey, all of it collected in a single volume for the first time. It's uh 42% off, just $28.99 from InStockTrades.com. Check out all those great deals at InStockTrades.com. All right, let us get started with our wonderful conversation with Gary Gianni on uh, today's Word Balloon. Gary Gianni, welcome back to Word Balloon. Well, thank you for having me back. Well, and uh, this time, uh, you know, we, we did try to record a, a conversation. We, we'll try not to refer to it much, but... Uh, this is well, a, you know, the funny you're going to have to laugh at all the same jokes <laughs> and try to make this very spontaneous. Uh, we'll see what we can do. We'll see how good of a, a, an actor, well, both of us are. Exactly. Well, the good news is we've got good material to work off of because Hellboy Into the Silent Sea is gorgeous and uh, excellent work from yourself and Mike Mignola and Dave Stewart. Uh, congratulations. I, uh, Thank you. I, I refer to the uh, the uh, acknowledgments, and this was Mike's uh, tributes in the book. But he mentions mm-hmm. John Houston, Ray Bradbury, uh, Gregory Peck, and Herman Melville because mm-hmm. they couldn't have done uh, they couldn't have done it without him, of course. Right. And uh, yeah, so obviously, you know, a, a seafaring story for for Hellboy with uh, you know definite nods to to Moby Dick, and and uh, you know, I, I know you have in particular, uh, an enjoyment uh, when it comes to that uh, great John Huston, Ray, Ray Bradbury, Gregory Peck film. Yeah, it used to run about uh, twice a week on television, and my dad never missed it when it was on. And uh, I, you know, uh, I was a captive audience when I was a little kid, but I liked it, and it was cool, and I've always liked it since. And uh, I never understood the criticism uh, concerning uh, Gregory Peck as uh, Captain Ahab, um, I thought he was terrific, and uh, I especially liked the, the uh, uh, riffing that uh, Ray Bradbury did with the story, um, because Moby Dick at times can be a little uh, tangential. Uh, tangential, I, I'll say, uh, going off into other areas and. Um, it's a, it's it's kind of a hard book to read. Actually. Oh yeah, yeah, it's I, hard going. I th- I've always felt that way as well. I really, a lot of the writers of that era, I felt that way about Hawthorne. I felt that way uh, about Melville. Um, but yeah, you're right. I mean, that's the thing. It's you know, and and I I know that used to be a thing where people would say, you know, I'm really going to finally sit down and read Moby Dick, and it's mm-hmm. like, well, yeah, good right luck. up there with <laughs> right up there with James Joyce. <laughs> Definitely. Uh, you but, said, uh, there are a lot of really great things in uh, Moby Dick that uh, that film didn't touch on. 
but it's almost impossible to turn a, a, a book into a film without a certain amount of uh, reworking and, and cutting and so forth. Um, they're just two different uh, art forms, and uh, the twain shall never meet, I don't uh, think. <laughs> did uh, uh, It's rare. You, did, you had the chance to talk to Ray, and uh, did you talk about Moby Dick with him? Yeah, I did. And, uh, you know, when I mentioned that half the great lines in, in the film are not in the book, he just laughed and said, well, yeah, I, I, uh, we had to do a lot of uh, condensing. And, and uh, he was tickled that I, I liked it as much as I did. And he and I were, of course, he's a big Jules Verne fan as well. And uh, I adapted uh, a comic strip version of Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea, and when I was uh, and when I was talking with Ray about another book he and I were working on, he said, "Oh yeah, I understand you're coming out with a Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea. So would you like a foreword for that?" Wow! Uh, and I, I said, <laughs> uh, "Well, I um, wouldn't turn one down." And he said, "Well, you know, I wrote one back in the early '60s, and it was used in a, a signet paperback version of uh, Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea because I, I, I was a big fan of the book and the uh, author." And he said, "If you'd like to use it, uh, feel free." So, <clears throat> uh, the Flesk publication version of Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea that I adapted has a foreword by Ray Bradbury. It's very nice. That's amazing. I have that uh, collection. I didn't realize it was originally a comic strip because the book is so lush and, of course, oversized as well. Yeah, uh, it was. But uh, uh, we kind of reworked it a little bit, and it came out in that deluxe edition with the Ray Bradbury preface and uh i stuck a hg wells story at the back mm -hmm. uh, you know there are a lot of really great writers that uh, their work is becoming uh, more and more uh just um slipping into the shadows of the past like that hg wells story great little uh short story called raiders of the sea uh about a um a swarm of squids that attack uh, a, a north uh, east coast uh, town along the North Sea in England. Um, and it's really great. It's got some pretty grisly uh, moments in it, like a, a, a boat uh, with a family on it that gets capsized and the children and the wife and the husband all get uh, taken away by squids with long tentacles and these snapping parrot beaks it's it's pretty uh <laughs> hair-raising stuff for the for even for now sure no that's amazing that's hilarious what was the other uh collaboration with bradbury um he wrote a story in the 1960s called the nefertiti tut express it was really uh more of an uh a treatment or an outline for a, pro a propose a proposal for a film okay. uh, that he was thinking about um, developing further, uh, he had read an article about um, in in the 1890s uh, they were using uh, mummy remains to um, to make fires because they 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 had this flammable material uh, that 
made great like <laughs> these mummies were like yule logs or wow. something and they and people were burning you know these these um um great uh archaeological dig finds they were just burning them up for uh, making to make fires there's not a lot of wood out there in the in the deserts of uh, <laughs> egypt uh so he he developed this story about a um, a steam train that breaks down in the middle of the desert and the passengers and the uh, engineer of the train uh, managed to stumble upon a um, a tomb in the middle of the uh, desert and uh, they take the mummies back to the train and they feed them into the firebox on the steam train to get it going again and and uh, all hell breaks loose once that happens <laughs> the spirits of the uh, of the now burnt deceased um uh, you know, affecting everybody on the train. It's a cool little story, but he only wrote it as an outline. Uh-huh. And it fell behind his filing cabinet at some point, and he never really got back to it. And it was never, it, it, it had never seen the light of day. Uh, but about um, 20 years ago, he, maybe even less than that, he had found it. And uh, a friend of mine who knew him pretty well, uh, suggested that it might make a nice little uh, uh, small um, collectible tome, um, uh, maybe not much more than a, a couple of pages. It could be like a pamphlet or something, but it was a fun little story that had never been published. And he said, well, it was too much of a, uh, um, of a trifle. It wasn't really fully developed, and he wasn't sure about it. But um, my friend Terry McVicker said, well, what if, what if we had Gary Gianni uh, flesh it out and, and do some illustrations for it? Um, and at the time, I was working on Prince Valiant, and Ray Bradbury is a huge Prince Valiant fan, and that's how I got to know him. Wow. That. And uh, uh, we wound up um, working on this little Nefertiti Tut uh, Express booklet, uh, and it was printed by carry uh on a on a small press and uh it was uh, when we were working on it ray was very excited about it he was going to sign all these things but his health was deteriorating at this time quite a bit okay and um uh, he uh he was he became more and more ill and uh we got this thing out about two weeks before he died and wow. it was the last uh it was the last book uh, Ray ever held in his hands that was published in his lifetime. Uh, they took it to the hospital where he was, and and I heard and I understand he was quite touched that um, we were able to get it out in time. So that's amazing, man. Kind of a sad, yeah. sad ending for it, but um, um, as I said, it was um, it's a it's a great memory for me. I even have his voice on my answering machine to this day. I, I haven't been able to erase it. He called me up one afternoon, and he needed uh, he wanted to see the sketches again. He had misplaced the sketches that I had done, and he kept referring to them as oh, you know those beautiful drawings you've done. Uh, I can't find them. If you could please send me those beautiful drawings, and uh, I'd really appreciate it. He must have said thank you and please and. Uh, he was just such a sweet man. Uh, anybody who knows him, and and just 
just about everybody has a Ray Bradbury story. He was very accessible and he was always at conventions and very open to talking with fans. And I found uh, so many people over the years who um, have stories about Ray. So it's, it's great. I, I would, I would, I imagine you may even have a story about Ray Bradbury. Believe it or not, my first San Diego, 2006, I, I saw him and Ray Harryhausen together and literally just went up and, and introduced myself and said what a great fan I was of both of theirs. And they were very gracious and kind, and I, I didn't want to you know, spend that much time. Them and George Clayton Johnson, who I got to yeah. meet the year before he passed, um, uh-huh. yeah, those were my really exciting oh my God, I can't believe I'm meeting these legendary people. And George Uh Clayton Johnson, for people who are listening, he co-wrote Logan's Run. He wrote the original story that became Ocean's Eleven. He wrote the first episode of Star Trek and several Twilight Zones that were very uh, prominent, including the Kick the Can uh, episode. Uh, Just, yeah, really great, uh, another great science fiction uh, creator. And uh, yeah, I, in fact, Andy Parks, uh, a great, a very good writer and, and anchor. Uh, I'm like, dude, you got to go upstairs with me right now. He's like, why? I'm like, George Clayton Johnson is just finishing a panel. I said, we got to meet him. And he's like, oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so we ran upstairs and we're both in our late 40s. And he's like, oh, thanks, boys. Nice to meet you. He called us boys. And we loved it. It was like, yeah. So. Well, he was, yeah, he's, he was pretty old by that time. <laughs> absolutely. But um, yeah, I, oh, no. I mean, God, it was, you're right. I mean, Bradbury used to be such a great accessible fixture at every San Diego, <clears throat> and that was that was really just you know I mean because you, you know you get that red velvet rope treatment on so many stars that that show up at the big Hall H presentations and stuff like that, and it's like nah eh, that's all right Ray Bradbury's walking around you might stumble onto him and stuff and you would right. you know so that was great yeah yeah it's it, it's something that uh, is. These things make for such great treasured memories. Oh, absolutely! Uh, and they—I always feel as if uh, you know, there's a torch being passed to guys like us. This connection to to people like that yep. is uh, something that uh, we have to keep that banner held high and make sure people don't forget about these guys. Of, well, you know, of course, Bradbury is isn't going to be forgotten anytime soon, but. Um, I just I love hearing stories like that. You know, you having a chance to meet both Rays. Yeah, um, <laughs> that's that's pretty cool. Yeah. Now, and uh, I I want to get back to the Hellboy thing. Um, how far back do you and Mike go? Oh, we go back about twenty three, twenty four years now, I suppose. Just at the beginning of uh, when he was uh, starting Hellboy. That's cool. Um, you know, I, I've known him that long when uh, uh, Jeff Darrow introduced um, us, and um, uh, we hit it off right away. I, 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 of course, even at that time, I loved his work, but I didn't know he had seen anything of mine, but uh, he had, and, and uh, we immediately fell into uh, old home week, you know, talking about movies and books, and, and it's been that way ever since. And, uh, you know, as far as a lot of people ask me, well, how did the, this Hellboy story uh, finally come about? Yeah. Which I'm sure you're about to ask me that. <laughs> That's where I was I'll going. I'll beat you to it. And uh, <laughs> that, that was a long time in the making, you know. Uh, first of all, I, I did the backup stories in Hellboy's uh, early comics, um, a feature I created called The Monster Men. And Mike liked that stuff quite a bit. 
so when it came time to us working on a Hellboy story, I, I, you know, I, he knew what he was getting. It wasn't as if uh, I wasn't some untested, um, um, you know, ingredient. He he was he uh, he wrote the story for me. He um, he came up with the idea for me. He knew that I'd like to do something with the sea, and um, this was a little side event in Hellboy's timeline when he gets lost at sea. I think it's mentioned in one of his earlier uh, graphic novels where Hellboy reminisces, reminisces about the time he's uh, lost at sea, but he doesn't go into it. And then Mike once said, uh, oh yeah, I put this uh, little bookmark in Hellboy's timeline for you to illustrate when, when, you, want to, when, you, when you want to get around to it. And, um, you know, the time finally came where I had a window of opportunity to work on it. And uh, it just fell in place, uh, especially with our history. Um, we went back and forth on developing the story. He had a, he had a nice outline. And uh, we, we filled in a lot of the gaps. And uh, it, it, it was a very organic thing. And, and uh, it worked out quite well. For for chronological fans, um, apparently this story follows the events of Hellboy the Island from a timeline yes. standpoint. Yes. And, um, uh, go ahead, please. I was just going to say uh, there are a lot of uh, Hellboy fans out there that know infinitely more about Hellboy than I do. So um, uh, I'm not even sure where that's placed. So thanks for... Um, <laughs> Um, you know, kind of uh, shoring me up on that. No worries. I I think it's great that you, you know, your style obviously fits this story so well, 19th century seafaring story. And I mentioned this before when we spoke that um, I love Hellboy in the middle of this story because he has such a distinct design. Um, mm-hmm. It's almost like, and I made this analogy before, like Mickey Mouse walking around it's like a, basically like something like Fantasia where, you know, it's unmistakably, you know, Hellboy in this, you know, 19th century setting. And was it was it easy for you to adapt your style to the Hellboy design or was it difficult? Um, well, I was worried that there would be such a, an inconsistency between Mike's work and mine that uh, the, the fans wouldn't accept it. Um but Mike told me not to worry about that. He he said, I, I you know I don't I don't want this to look like my work. Uh, and you couldn't ask for two extremes. Mm-hmm. I think I've uh, I've got more lines in one panel than Mike's <laughs> used in the last twenty years. So um, uh, you know he put me at ease as far as just trying not to uh, look over my shoulder too much at what. Um, he had done, uh, and, but I also uh, found that uh, Duncan Fergredo's work helped me quite a bit too, because he's a, he's a little more uh, literal than than Mike is as far stylistically speaking, mm-hmm. and uh, I found that um, I was by looking at what Mike did and what Duncan did, I, I was able to kind of build my own Hellboy that uh, uh, seemed to. Um, catch the spirit of uh, the character enough. 
and um, after a while, I felt pretty comfortable about it. There are some do's and don'ts with Hellboy that you have to be careful with. Um, he's not built like a regular guy. He's very barrel-chested, and his legs are small. And uh, I, I'm, I'm, uh, his, his legs are difficult to do. Um, and he doesn't have goat legs. Some people think he has goat legs or something like that. But he, he really does, he has hooves, but they're almost like they're in boots. And so you really can't even, other than the, the split at the front of the foot, you don't really see the, the design of the foot all that well. So, uh, and the hand, of course, is concrete <laughs> and is, is uh, something that, Mike likes to uh, draw it from certain angles, and he likes to keep it obscure uh, in in other... Like, you never see Hellboy with his palm open. Now, I wasn't <laughs> aware of that. Um, so you just... There are certain camera angles, if I can put it that way, that work better for Hellboy uh, than others. Um, and I found that if I render his face too much... It would, it wouldn't look like him. I had to be careful with the amount of detail I put into his face. Um, and then you've got that great mouth that's like a, a puppet's mouth that looks like a, kind of a torn pocket. Uh, and I love that about him. And I always see a little bit of. Uh, oh no! Now I'm blanking on the musician who. Um, uh, Tom Waits. Helped. Tom Waits, yeah. I can see, I can totally see Tom Waits. That's that's why it was easy to come up with the name that fast. Absolutely, yeah. that's hilarious. He, yeah. that's true. You know, he could have played Hellboy. That's he might have. And as a matter of fact, Ron Perlman could have could play Tom Waits. I suppose. But <laughs> so you know, there is this weird connection. But I was just I heard a song the other day by Tom Waits. The the piano has been drinking. And the other way, just like this, you know. And I could just see Hellboy at times kind of, you know, slipping into a guttural <laughs> speech pattern and the cadence uh, that would be similar to that as well. Yeah, I've been drinking, you know, that sort of thing. Um, it seems to lend itself to Hellboy. Did you Did you enjoy the Perlman movies? Uh, yeah, I liked them well enough. Uh, the, the, I, you know, the movie and the comic are two different things. Agreed. Uh, uh, luckily, they can exist in the same world, and nobody seems to have uh, a problem with, uh, uh, you know, the the disparity or the the, the, the dissimilar things that are uh, there in, in, between the films and the comics. Um, so yeah, I enjoyed them well enough. Sure, yeah, they were they were a lot of fun. Absolutely. You know, you you two in our, our previous conversation, you made another analogy, not just Moby Dick, but in a lot of ways, you said that uh, this reminded you of another comic strip hero that is a bit of a more of a funny uh, comic strip hero, but a hero nonetheless. And actually, a lot oh, yeah. of similarities between Hellboy and this guy. Yeah, Popeye. I, I'm uh, I'm a big Popeye fan, LZ Seagar fan. Amen. And uh, this was this this Hellboy story is is uh, is my take on a Popeye story, really, <laughs> right up to uh, the uh, antagonist uh, is based on the uh, the Sea Hag. So um, you know, for anybody who does pick up the comic. 
when you're when you're reading this, you may say, "Oh yeah, I see what he means by this." Yeah, that it that is sort of a sea hag. It's she's a cross between a sea hag and about a half dozen nuns I knew when I was going to Catholic grammar school. <laughs> I could see both, absolutely. And also, so many great scenes. And this is, you know, I, I know this too about your other work, like The Monster Men, too. Just wonderful kind of those 19th century, whether they were, you know, illustrations or even early photographs, uh, you know, great uh, demonstrations of, uh, of medicine uh, happening mm-hmm. and, yeah. uh, and a yeah. great right. Ed- Edison uh, cylinder uh, phonograph. Sure. Yeah, all that stuff is, um, there's so much wacky stuff out there that, you know, you just can't make that stuff up. I mean, you you look at some of the inventions in the 19th century, and <laughs> and, and they're, they, they look like steampunk, you know. Totally. The, the stuff's great. Um, the, the only thing I can say about all that uh, reference is uh, you could take that too far and you can become a slave to the reference. Uh, so after a point, you have to put all that stuff down. And, uh, uh, you know, there's a certain amount of um, at this point. Yes, you are uh, making things up and you are exaggerating and you are maybe taking it to another level. Uh, but, yeah, there's there there was a lot of reference that I had to compile to do the Hellboy story. That, of course, the ship, which is um, uh, most of the action takes place on a whaling ship, mm-hmm. and I wanted to make sure that the reader understands spatially where everything is, where Hellboy is, and and uh, where things are happening below deck and so forth. And uh, I I went to a, uh, a a ship model club. I found one in in a a Chicagoland suburb, and uh, I wasn't quite sure how these guys would receive me, but I, I went to one of their meetings. I just showed up, and uh, they were great. They were like um, uh, the uh, the Seven Dwarfs or something. All these guys with you know little guys with glasses and long beards, and very into what they were doing. Um, they uh, they were delighted to have somebody from outside come and. Uh, uh, spend some time and uh, take some interest in what they were doing. And you know, these guys build these things you see in museums. They're they're not kits. They're they're made from scratch. And sure. These sh- ships are five feet long, uh, and they talk about all the the things they do to create. Um, you know, the decks of their ships and the the little rivets and uh, even porthole frames and things like that. It's it's the kind of uh, trivia and minutiae that we do at comic book conventions, you know? Uh, sure. every, everybody has their, their thing, uh, and these guys do as well, and they, they even have conventions. Sure. Um, and they'll, they'll talk about what, uh, what brand of matchstick is the best to use for, uh, you know, maybe certain... Um, spars on on masts and so forth it it was really fascinating uh anyway they they welcomed me and one guy said you know i have a whaling ship it took me two and a half years to make i have it in the basement of my house and he said you'd be happy to photograph it and uh that was great reference it was much better than even having an actual ship to walk on 
because you're able to uh, photograph the the model from you know a bird's eye view or below uh, below the water line and and uh, the thing was so well detailed right down to you know marlin spikes and chains on uh, links on chains and so forth that you the my camera just lying on the deck of the ship you you looked it looked like you were on a real ship so wow. uh, there were. There was all kinds of great reference uh, I had at my hand, at my fingertips for this job, but again, you can you can reference something to death, but at some point you you really need to get on with it and <laughs> just uh, put all that stuff aside and and do what you have to do. How long did it take you to uh, d- draw this? I know that it's been a while since you've done regular interiors of of comics, and that you know mostly you know in the last few years you've been doing. Uh, is it right to call it? Yeah, book illustrations. I was going to say spot illustrations. I don't know if that's correct or not to de- describe them that way. But yeah, book illustrations for people like uh, George R. R. Martin and uh, uh, Michael Chabon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, comics, uh, again, the, the, the difference, there is a difference between illustrating books and, and drawing comics. Uh, it's, a, it's a little bit of a... Uh, again, it's a little bit of a different art form in, mm-hmm. a, in a sense, but uh, it took me about eight or nine months to do the Hellboy, and that's all the more reason why I have to take my hat off to you know the greats like Jack Kirby, where he could pencil a couple of pages a day. And, yeah. Um, and I know there are a lot of comic artists even today who are you know, who are just working 12 hours a day to, to get uh, a, a monthly comic out. It amazes me that they can do that. Agreed. I'd never be able to work that fast. Is that, is that why in your acknowledgments, you, you uh, gave tribute to, to, to Kirby? Was it because, you know, yeah. what it was it because of his speed and the, the ability to put out a, a comic book as quickly and as beautifully as he was able to do or. Well, all the above, but uh, Jack Kirby was how I learned to read when I was a little kid. There you Um, go. He was one of my early artistic influences. Uh, I used to go to a a little drugstore in the neighborhood, like in the old days, where they set the comic books up on a shelf, and and I knew the owner, and he, he knew my parents really well, and... Uh, he let me set the comic books up on the stand uh, at the uh, when the sh- comics came in, along with the other magazines. Of course, the Playboys were never uh, <laughs> part, of, part of the deal. But uh, uh, and he'd always give me a comic book after I finished um, helping him, and wow. I'd sit at the, the at the stools and and get a uh, a coke or something, and uh, and I I was a terrible reader when I was a little kid. And it was Kirby's stuff because his storytelling works so well. You almost don't even need to read it to be able to follow a, a story, at least in a broad sense. Sure. And uh, it it helped it helped me learn how to read from comics. So Kirby's uh, part of my DNA. Understood, man. No, absolutely. Um, you know, you uh, going back to the one scene where it, you know you do kind of have like almost a medical conference happening. Uh, mm-hmm. I wondered if you are aware of uh, a Cinemax show uh, that was called The Nick, and it really got into uh, late 19th century medicine. Clive Owen, the British actor, was the lead in it. And, mm. it, I mean, I, I really think it would be something that you would really find interesting. I don't know if it's out on DVD or not, 
But um, what's the name of the show? The Nick with an N. Uh, N I C K. It's either K N I C K or it's N I C K. I forget which. But it is really like you know, 19th century medicine at its most experimental and gruesome, frankly. <laughs> and it's it's really it's fascinating. And and your you know your your brief scenes in in uh, in the book reminded me of of the show. And I'm sure their inspiration came from those same kind of interesting illustrations and photographs of of that kind of early medicine. So. Yeah, well, so much of the stuff on television, whether it's a medieval uh, epic like a, something like the Game of Thrones or, sure. or a Civil War period thing or uh, the Nick, what you're talking about right there, even Dalton Abbey for uh, for that matter. Oh, yeah. Every, everything is so nicely researched these days. There, there, there's such a wealth of uh, visual... Um, material out there that an artist can can use um that um it just impresses me all the more with uh artists of the past who didn't have this kind of stuff at their fingertips to work with when i see all the great illustrations from the turn of the century um all the golden age illustrators they never had all this sort of reference sure. they they'd put together jousting scenes and you know, incredible scenes of volcanoes exploding or even animals, um, you know, it w- would have been hard to uh, uh, find a really good reference on a silverback mountain gorilla in 1910. So um, uh, yet those guys were able to somehow cook that stuff up. I, I'm not quite sure how they did it. It's, it still amazes me. Well, you've no. got you've got great scenes in here, not just on the ship, but uh, archaeological digs. I mentioned the med- the medical conference scene, uh, some great uh, mythological kind of uh, moments, uh, you know, in front of in front of pyramids, and not just Egyptian pyramids, but it seems other other uh, probably the is it South American pyramids we're also looking at. Well, it's it's more of a feeling of the South American stuff, yeah. Very cool. Uh, well, that that was a nice thing about that story as well. When Mike first started pitching it to me, I was hoping the whole thing wouldn't just take place on the on a ship. Uh, but luckily, there are a couple of backstories uh, and um, um, you know flashbacks in this thing where I was able to to draw their environments. Uh, so that made the job a lot more interesting, and I think interesting for the reader as well. And Dave Stewart, man, such great subtle colors as always. Um, but it's it's great because it certainly does not intrude on your line work, and it really is a great marriage of of both of your styles. Well, that's the nice thing about Dave. Uh, he seems to be a man of of a thousand faces. Um, he he's able to jump from uh, guys like uh, Jeff Darrow to Mike to me, uh, countless other uh, artists working in comics, and he's sympathetic and seems to catch the right note for every one of those artists. I'm not quite sure how he does that, but uh, he's a genius. And well, yeah. uh, he, I knew he knew how to treat my work without losing the uh, the line. So uh, yeah, I, I he made me look good. Well, <laughs> it's great, man. Honestly, it's so gorgeous, and uh, 
I can't wait for people to see it in a, in a few weeks. It's uh, it, it's it's really tremendous, and I'm I'm really glad it all came together. Great story, great art. Um, it, it's it's really beautiful. Before before I forget, because you mentioned that uh, story you did with Bradbury that came from um, that treatment. I just saw last week on Turner Classic Movies. I, I I think I hadn't seen it since I was at least twelve years old. The old Zsa, Zsa Gabor movie, Queen of Outer Space, and I don't know if you've ever seen that. I've never seen that movie. You know, the, in the 80s, um, John Landis did that Amazon Women on the Moon, which was <laughs> the comedy sketch movie that was kind of like Kentucky Fried Movie. The film yeah, that, yeah, it's got some funny stuff in it, yeah. Yeah, and the Sybil Danning, Steve Forrest stuff is pretty much a parody of uh, Queen of Outer Space. Oh, is that right? So oh, that's d- the reference for that. Guy. Yeah, down to down to the Rocky Jones looking uh, space outfits and everything. But it's great 1958 sci-fi kitsch. But I didn't know, and until I just saw it, that um, it came from a ten-page Ben Hecht treatment. And Ben no. Hecht is a, and I know you know the name Ben Hecht, but for the listeners, oh, sure. great, yeah. great screenwriter. Yes, great screenwriter. He wrote the front page. He wrote a lot of classic Hollywood films. Uh, was a Chicago newsman before he became uh, a, a screenwriter. And this is one of the last things that, you know, he sold to Allied Artists, which was uh, Monogram Films' A-picture division. And it was just this 10-page treatment that was going to be more of a comedy. And, you know, back then, boy, wouldn't it be funny if there was a planet where woman, women ruled the, ruled the world. And it was more of a, a social satire. And they reworked it into this great cheeseball sci-fi movie. <laughs> And also was directed by Ed Burns, and Ed Burns did a lot of Three Stooges work and also a lot of the Bowery Boy feature work. And I'm kicking myself because literally when I was like 18 years old, I got to interview Ed Burns, and all we talked about were the Stooges. And if I knew then what I knew now, it, actually uh, uh, Charles Beaumont, one of the great uh, Twilight Zone writers sure. and science fiction writers, absolutely, sure. yeah, took took the 10 pages and fleshed out the script. And it's just... Um, you know, yeah, I, it just blew my mind that, you know, Ben Hecht had, had a little bit of something to do with this goofball Zsa Zsa Gabor crazy sci-fi. Movie. Yeah, well, you know, that reminds me of that, uh, what is that, seven degrees separation? Yes. Or how to, what is that, you know, but you could probably find all kinds of uh, connections if you dig deep enough. And uh, Ben Hecht to that movie, wow, that's that's a bit of a stretch, but... Uh, I believe it, you know. Pretty well. Uh, yeah, yeah. Wow. So, so, um, well, you're kind of a modern-day Ben Hecht. Oh, stop. That, I'll take the compliment, but that's, that, man, it, <laughs> ben, ben Hecht just took a quick spin in his grave. <laughs> I could go. see you hanging around a newsroom and, you know, running out the door with the, the latest... Uh, the, the latest corrupt official being sentenced down at Cook County Jail or something like that. You'd fit right into that. I could see you on an old phone, one of those candlestick phones, talking real fast. That's right, Mabel. Oh, stop Get the press. city desk. <laughs> yeah. It's true. Well, I used to run around like that for sports. And honestly, sometimes at conventions, I do kind of feel like I'm 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 covering uh sports and news that way running around uh, hearing hearing the announcements that are made and you know making my notes and oh well i'm gonna have to interview this person because i just announced this project and stuff like that yeah so yeah you well, know that, when that's background for you i think um and i think it makes you uh much more nimble on your feet 
and to have um, this checkered past uh, of all these different uh, professions of yours, they seem to coalesce nicely into what you're doing these days. Thanks, man. That's awesome. I want to uh, uh, talk a minute about uh, your collaborations with uh, Mark Schultz on Prince Valiant because mm-hmm. you know you you we've discussed it in brief before, and uh, you, man, you you had a great run, and it was uh, you're the third artist, Hal Foster. And I always bl- oh John Cullen Murphy was the second one, and mm-hmm. then and then yourself and you apprenticed first with uh, John Murphy who apprenticed with with Foster specifically right. doing how I mean he had he already yeah. was an accomplished comic strip artist himself. Um, yes, and but, you know the other thing about uh, not many people know about John Cullen Murphy when he was a kid he used to pose for Norman Rockwell for Saturday evening Saturday evening post covers. Wow. Um. And, uh, you know, he pointed out some of the covers he posed for uh, um, Rockwell, and he had some great stories about Rockwell. That's one of the reasons I initially said, yeah, sure, I'll work, I'll work on the strip with you, is because I, I thought uh, I, could, I could learn something about um, uh, some of the materials and techniques of the, the great Golden Age masters. He had... He had uh, taken classes with uh, Dean Cornwell, and he he had taken classes with uh, Franklin Booth. He wow. knew a lot of those guys from uh, the 20s and the 30s, um, and uh, uh, that's. I remember Al Williams saying to me, "Oh, you've got to take the Prince Valiant job. It, it'll it'll make you a better artist. Take you got to take it." Because I was on the fence about it. I wasn't sure I wanted to do it because I I just I didn't know much about Prince Valiant. I as you well know, Prince Valiant was discontinued here in Chicago, and uh, the the uh, Chicago American was uh, discontinued, and that was about 1969 or 70 mm-hmm. or so. So Prince Valiant uh, didn't get much of a run after that. So I didn't, I didn't, I didn't even know who Queen Alita was <laughs> when I started working on Prince Valiant. Um, a lot of people will. Uh, think that I, you know, I must have been uh, a big Foster fan, and uh, not really. No, I uh, simply because I, I wasn't all that familiar with Foster's work. I mean, I, I, of course, I knew it, but I had to get up to speed pretty quickly uh, working on Prince Valiant, who was another character, incidentally, that wasn't easy to um, to get uh, a feeling for in much the same way that I, I had to get uh, get up to speed on Hellboy, too, uh, because Valiant has a lot of idiosyncratic ticks to his character design, too. Uh, that didn't come naturally to me. Um, and uh, I also uh, had to learn how to use less line work in Prince Valiant, because uh, Murphy thought um, I was spending too long on the strip, and um, kind of cluttering it up since it was reduced so much in the newspaper. Understood. But, uh, you know, I, I did learn a lot about other techniques working on Prince Valiant. I just read that uh, Colleen Dorn uh, still has a bunch of um, pen points or quill points that she got from Marie Severin to kind of, oh. you know, and, and in fact used uh, those specific pens to draw uh, Stan Lee's uh, biography that she and Mark Evanier are working on. And she mm-hmm. said to kind of evoke a Silver Age style, she was using 
those quills. And I wonder if there was anything like that in working with with uh, Prince Valiant. That you know, did did do you you know do you have anything like that that is like kind of older uh, equipment to evoke a specific kind of style? Uh, well, of course, the dipping the pen in ink is the crow quill point isn't as used as much as it uh, used to be. Um, uh, Murphy really didn't give me any material per se, but he did. Um, he did suggest I use a couple of things that I hadn't been using that were uh, uh, tools of the trade 30, 40, 50 years ago, and I've incorporated them since then, um, one of which is the uh, the ink eraser, the, the uh, electric ink eraser, which I use all the time when I'm inking things. Uh, as a matter of fact, I probably, and I don't know how I do this, but I probably erase more lines than I put into a drawing. I'm not quite sure how that happens. Um, but, you know, you're, uh, the, the woman you're talking about there, uh, I'm sure she, um, there's, there's some sort of a, a cosmic link there that uh, I'm sure uh, she appreciates and is able to uh, evoke, uh, you know, the tonal quality of, of uh, what was going on 50 or 60 years ago. Um, yeah. And if it helps to be able to use Marie Severin's equipment, that that's great. I, I can't wait to see that. <laughs> I know a lot of your uh, Prince Valiant stuff is collected. Is a new collection coming out of uh, your Prince Valiant stuff? Yeah, there's about uh, I did about 450 Sunday pages, and those will be coming out uh, from Flesk Publications. They're all shot from the originals, and they're all in black and white, uh, sort of a you know a, a oversized book uh, that should be out maybe the end of the summer, uh, early fall. So I'm looking forward to that. That's awesome, man. I, that's great. You and Mark did such a great job, Mark Schultz. And, well, Mark was another uh, great guy to work with in ter- terms of uh, he he was so easy to work with, easy on the draw. We'd discuss storylines, and he'd ask me what I felt like drawing, and then he'd work something up, and um, uh, and then I would uh, tweak it somewhat, and um I've been very fortunate with anybody I've ever worked with where they've, um, uh, they didn't feel, uh, uh, like they had to be in some sort of, uh, authoritarian position and dictate everything. Um, because I, I wouldn't, I, I, I don't think I'd uh, do very well working under those kind of conditions. It was always uh, a nice partnership with, uh, even some of the authors I worked with, Shabon or George Martin, um, they've, they've all been great. I, I have had a good run. What? Tell me about the discipline too of having to do a daily strip. Was it was it just Sundays or was it a daily strip as well? It was just a Sunday strip. Yes. Okay, it was a Sunday strip. Uh, the the big thing about a deadline working for a newspaper strip is it can never be late. You can never be late with that. They don't care whether you're, uh, you, you know, you've if you've had the flu or the bubonic plague. You better have that thing done by uh, by Monday uh, for the next Sunday's release. And uh, 
I never missed a deadline. Um, you work a few months in advance, but they don't like to get to, to fall too far behind, even at that. Um, and uh, it, it was it was kind of like laying track with the train coming over the <laughs> press, you know, and you're looking over your shoulder. Um, and it's a little bit of a different discipline, even from doing a comic book. Sure. Um, it's a it's a little different, a bit of a, an art form. Doing a, a Sunday comic strip, just as, as it is different from illustrating a book uh, to doing a uh, comic book. It, they're all slightly different um, disciplines that I had to get up to speed with. Um, but, um, I, I, yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. At times I was out of my comfort zone with Prince Valiant, but I think I did grow as an artist because of that. I had to draw children, and I had to draw... Um, horses were always difficult for me up until then, and uh, I had to draw a lot of horses. And um, I think that stuff's even reflected in even what I'm doing today with the Hellboy. Uh, Twenty years ago, I would not have uh, put a dog or a little kid into this uh, Hellboy story. Um, but um, I think uh, that that's the heart of this Hellboy story uh, is the boy and the dog. Um, it would have been uh, easy to have uh, tweaked the story a little bit, so those kind of characters didn't need to be in it. But I wanted uh, I wanted a, a boy and a dog in there, and um, that's the great thing about Hellboy. Going back to Hellboy a little bit, though, sure. um, no matter how outrageous the stories are, and I tend not to describe them as horror stories, but they're they're. Uh, uh, there's a great deal of romance and poetry to the Hellboy stories, and uh, there's always this uh, this poignancy and even a bit of melancholy that uh, seeps into all the stories. Um, and uh, they have great heart to them. The best of the Hellboy stories that Mike's written always have uh, some, you know, some sort of beautiful romantic poetry to them. And uh, I hope that this story does uh, does fulfill those requirements as well. Um, so you know, the the little boy and the dog, I think, uh, help sure. in that. Agreed, absolutely. No, man, I, I the tone is right, and yeah, help. You know, he's he's this loner, and uh, but but no, there's always a streak of humanity in him as well, Hellboy, and. Uh, you can't help it. I mean, he is. He's such a he's such a weird, giant-looking guy, but but very yeah. human and very quietly, sadly, on his own. But kind of you know bears the burden and everything. And uh, it, no, it's it's great, man. Honestly, I, I think uh, I think people are going to be very happy when they uh, when they read into the Silent Sea. Um, I, I want to point out that I know you're going to be in San Diego, and a lot of the creators that we've even mentioned in this conversation, uh, it's great. You guys are all kind of in this like little. Uh, corner all together, Mike and uh, Jeff Darrow and Mark. Uh, yeah. You know yourself. Who am I missing? Oh, uh, Bill Stout is over there, yes. and uh, Stan Sakai. Yes, indeed, is over there, and uh, who else? Um, oh, I'm, I'm. That's a good blanking. list. Joe Michael Linzer, I think, might be over there. Yeah, as well. Mike Michael Joe Joe Linzer's there. Yes. Mm-hmm. And it's right by, too, uh, another area that I really love beyond your tables is there's always a corner where 
you can see original pulp covers and interiors that are that are framed and uh, you know at at ridiculously high prices. But the great thing is they're on exhibit there, so if you can't afford yeah, them, you right. can at least appreciate uh, some of that great pulpy uh, magazine illustration stuff from uh, you know God for, really from every for every decade really. Yeah, that is great. I, I think we all run over there to see what uh, Illustration House and Fred Tarabas and, and a few of those other uh, art dealers have over there. And uh, the, the pulp stuff, which you mentioned, is also uh, always played a big, um, uh, had a big influence on me. Sure. I love the old pulp stuff. And uh, there is a good streak of pulpiness and film noir to Mike's Hellboy as well. Very true. Aside from the gothic, uh, romantic mystery of uh, of, of the uh, the tone of Hellboy. And you're going to uh, Kansas City for a Spectrum show? Yeah, that Spectrum show is coming up um, uh, the twenty the twentieth, twenty first, around that time in Kansas City. And there are a lot of really great illustrators who are going to be at that too. Um, and uh, it's actually the uh, press or the the release uh, of the Hellboy book will be uh, will be at that show. Oh, that's great! I'll I'll be there and talking about Hellboy and other things I'm doing. So, if anyone listening is in the uh, in the area, I hope they come down because there's a lot of wonderful art down there. And unfortunately, that means I won't see it C two E two. Yeah, that is too bad. Both of those things are lining up on the same weekend, along with uh, the Windy City Pulp Con. Yes. Uh, which is another great place to see art. And I think Jim Steranko is going to be uh, the guest of the Windy City Pulp Con. So, you know, all these things are going on at the same time. I know, man. It's, uh, it's a shame. And I, I'm sorry to hear that because I'd love to see Jim as well. Doug Clawbar, a mutual friend, told me that uh, Jim is going to be at the Pulp Show. So, yeah. you know, and Alex Ross has a, a film thing that he's doing at the same time as uh, C2E2. So, yeah, it's really it's it's a shame that uh, these things are all happening at the same time. And uh, a bunch of you guys aren't going to be, you know, all, all at the same place. So I can I can say, yeah, we're all scattered uh, to the four corners. And, <laughs> you know, it never it never fails. I can circle something on the calendar and say, you know, this is great. I'm I'm looking forward to this event. And then all of a sudden, bang! There's five things on the same date, and you can look for the rest of the month, and there's nothing around. <laughs> Everything's on the one date. It's true. Oh I'm man! About to put the arrow. Well, have have a good time in Kansas City, and and also San Diego. I'm, I'm I probably won't be there at San Diego this year, but uh, I, I uh, I'm I'm glad we have the opportunity to talk today. And let people Great. know about Into the Silent Sea. I want to say that it it, it comes out wide uh, in May. Yes, yeah, so at the beginning of May there. Yeah, but uh, tremendous book. Hellboy Into the Silent Sea, Mike Mignola, Dave Stewart, and of course, illustrations from Gary Gianni. Uh, pleasure as always, man. Uh, please come back. I know you've got a couple other projects that won't be announced until later in the year. And that's a good excuse for us to get together and talk more old movies and old uh, old stories and, and your new projects. Well, I look forward to that, and uh, we'll speak again soon, John. Really great to catch up with Gary Gianni. Hellboy, Into the Silent Sea, is out on Wednesday in uh, the direct market, a couple weeks later on bookstores, but a uh, tremendous story, beautifully drawn by Gary Gianni, written by Mike Mignola, drawn, colored by Dave Stewart. It's just another great edition of Hellboy, and I hope uh, you'll take the time and check it out for yourself. 
Word Balloon today is brought to you by InStock Trades at InStockTrades.com, where you can find uh, such great collections as uh, how about Legionnaires Trade Paperback Book One, Tom McCraw, Tom Pyre, Mark Wade, Stuart Immerman, Les Moore, and uh, Jeffrey Moy, all uh, collaborating on this uh, great run of uh, Legionnaires. Uh, this is this is the fun uh, series. There were so many great startups and, and unfortunately things that didn't last too long with the Legion of Superheroes. I always say, I did this one my first conversation with Jeff Johns. There were two doors in the 70s, the X-Men door and the Legion of Superhero door. And I went through the Legion door and never regretted it because uh, they are my X-Men. And I and I, <laughs> I know about all of them as much as any uh, real X-Fan knows about every single mutant. But uh, Legionnaires, uh, this collection is uh, 50% off, just $17.49. There's the Clone Conspiracy. Wow, the hardcover's out. Uh, Spider-Man event, uh, Dan Slott doing uh, an incredible job as always. Man, this collects, okay, uh, all the amazing Spider-Man stuff, the Clone Conspiracy itself, uh, Clone Conspiracy Omega, Silk 14 through 17, Prowler 1 through 5, and uh, more material. So uh, you should check that out. It's uh, 512 pages, 42% off, just $34.80 to get the complete clone conspiracy. There's uh, Batman, Volume 2, I Am Suicide, Tom King uh, doing some incredible work along with uh, Mikkel uh, Janine uh, doing uh, the art on this arc. But uh, this is the Suicide Squad uh, getting together in Arkham Asylum and uh, great portrayals of the Psycho Pirate and uh, Bronze Tiger, among others. Uh, I think Tom uh, King is doing an excellent job on Batman. You know that we'll be talking to him very soon with some of the stories coming up. But enjoy Volume 2 for 42% off, $9.85. Just a few of the things that are available at InStockTrades.com. Check out all the deals. You will find great books, great prices, 40% off select IDW titles, just to name uh, another great deal that's happening right now at InStockTrades.com. Thank you, League of Word Balloon listeners, for your continued support. Thank you for enjoying uh, the show, and uh, you know, I'm coming up on, uh, wow, can it actually be uh, the, let's see, that would be the the 12th anniversary of Word Balloon coming up uh, in just a couple weeks, early May, May 10th is uh, the day that, uh, the anniversary day for Word Balloon, that's when I started WordBalloon.com and posted my first four episodes pre-podcast, they were just MP3 downloads on my website, and then somebody uh, told me, uh, a listener, you want to uh, put your stuff on iTunes. They're doing this thing called podcast. And basically what you're doing is a podcast without actually distributing like one. So September of 2005, that's when I put Word Balloon on iTunes. But I still say May 10th of 2005 is the the real anniversary of the beginning of Word Balloon. And uh, thank you. Thank you for being on the trip with me as long as you have. Uh, there's a lot of newbies that I'm pleased to welcome. And thank you for, for spreading the word. Uh, we just came out of tripod month in March, but I think uh, the traditions should continue. If you like what you hear, please let a friend know. I hope uh, to see you at C2E2. Uh, give me a chance to shake your hand and thank you for listening. Or if you know, you're know you germaphobic, then I'll just wave at you and thank you for listening. But uh, really great shows coming up, uh, leading into C2E2 and coming out of C2E2. And uh, I, I just can't wait to uh, give you more great em- entertainment in this month of April, right here on Word Balloon. Thanks for listening. Until next time, Word Balloon is a copyright feature of Shaky Productions, copyright 2017.